Hello, welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, an insatiably curious food and travel writer who's toured and tasted her way around more than 60 countries. Join me now as I talk to the people who make travelling and eating such a delicious adventure. Hey there, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Extra Virgin Food and Travel. I'm your host, Natasha Mirosh, and I love travel. I mean, I really, really love it. If you're a regular listener, you might have heard me tell the story of how, as a kid, I used to go through the international phone book and randomly ring the numbers of people in other countries and try to get them to talk to me. I was so fascinated with other places. I wanted to know what people could see as they looked out their windows, what they did every day, what they wore, what they ate, what they thought about, what they believed in. Most people hung up on me, but occasionally I get someone who'd humour me and spend a bit of time answering my childish questions. That curiosity about other places never went away, and as soon as I was old enough, I started travelling to see for myself. However, I have in recent years had some disquiet about how I approach travel. And while I can't imagine ever giving it up, I'd like to do it in a more thoughtful and perhaps less harmful way. And I'm hoping that my expert guest may be able to help me do that. Freya Higgins Debiol holds a whole raft of titles, and I'm probably going to stumble over all of them. She is adjunct associate press. There we go. She is adjunct associate professor with the Department of Recreation and Leisure Studies at the University of Waterloo, visiting professor at the Centre of Research and Innovation in Tourism at Taylor's University of Malaysia and adjunct with the business unit at University of South Australia. She has worked with industry, community and non-profits on projects that have worked at the cutting edge of just and sustainable tourism and she is co-editor of the book Socialising Tourism, Rethinking Tourism for Social and Ecological Justice, which came out last year. And this year she wrote The Local Turn in Tourism, Empowering Communities. Freya, thank you for joining me today. What an interesting field you work in. How did you get involved in the study of tourism? Hi, Natasha. It's really great to be with you. I got involved in tourism as an academic almost by accident. But in fact, as a small child, I was involved in tourism. I grew up on an island off the coast of North Carolina. And my Mm. mother ran a shell shop selling shells to the tourists. So I was unofficially working in the industry from about six or seven years <laughs> of age. But I became a tourism academic by way of work in international development. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And as I finished my PhD, which was about tourism and development and international relations, I found a job at the University of South Australia and became a scholar of tourism management. Hmm. Just going back to that, I've always been curious about what the Peace Corps actually is. It's not a religious organization, is it? No, you know, and I wouldn't be able to give you a strong history of it. I'll say what the official purpose was Hmm. and then maybe what the unofficial purpose was. It is a scheme of volunteering service in developing countries, which the American government created as part of its relationships with 
the developing world. So it was almost like an arm of international development, which was to bring, at that point, young people to developing countries to support development projects. I went to the Kingdom of Tonga as a teacher, and at my time, you didn't necessarily have to have strong skills Mm. to do that development work. It was basically people with an undergraduate degree or higher. But Mm. since that time, it's become a lot more skilled with people with expertise in things like agriculture or education or health, things like that. But you know, the unofficial aim might have been to also get young people with liberal education out of the country to act as for the U.S. because it is actually a person-to-person sort of relationship building as well. Some of the liberal arts people like me, my degree was in politics at that point, mm. and I didn't have a lot of skills. But the purpose is to get young people who couldn't find jobs out doing useful things, but also being shaped. Because I have to say, I gained a lot more from the experience than what I was capable of giving at that time. Mm. So it's a noble idea, perhaps a little bit problematic in practice. And perhaps as we talk today, some of those ideas will come come to the fore. How interesting. Faria, this is such a huge topic that we're, we're taking on today. It's not just about only leaving footprints anymore, is it, when we talk about travel Should we just all stay home? Are the negative impacts of travel now outweighing the positives, if there are any positives? Well, I am known as a vocal critic of tourism, but I want to be nuanced to say my cosmopolitan spirit and my values in part came from the experience of being a Peace Corps volunteer. So, And I I consider that a form of tourism. So I do want to say that we need to tease out some of the complexity of tourism. So there is this mass mainstream tourism that has been developed, which is often what we're critical of, the type of tourism that creates all-inclusive resorts that don't necessarily deliver the benefits that it promises Mm. to communities, particularly in the developing world, but also in the developed world. So that form of tourism, which has been about profit profit extraction, mm. is the problematic one and the one that I think we're very critical of. There are forms of tourism that have been overshadowed by this commercial profit-oriented t- tourism that have continued to coexist and that often it's not brought into our awareness. Mm. So, for instance, in Europe, it's well-known social tourism, which is the idea of tourism for all. And it's about trying ha- having projects and services that support the access to holidays, recreation, leisure, and tourism Mm. for disadvantaged populations. So that might be workers on low income, that might be people with disabilities, that might be supporting carers of people with disabilities, single parents, and so on. And youth, for instance. So for instance, in my youth, my mother was a single mother, and I did youth camps in the summer that she couldn't have afforded that was paid for as a form of social tourism. It was Mm -hmm. subsidized. So I consider some of those niches of tourism and the forms of tourism run by communities like community-based tourism, or we've got social entrepreneurialism and tourism that's looking at delivering benefits rather than extracting profits. 
all of these things are also part of the tourism phenomenon. So I think there's good and there's bad. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of negative impacts. And with the phenomenon of over-tourism, which was in our awareness in countries around the world, communities around the world, before the pandemic hit, those negative impacts have become increasingly visible. Hmm. Well, we're going to talk about what as individuals we can do to be better travellers a bit later, but let's talk about another form of problematic tourism. Something that's become hugely popular recently, and I see all over social media all the time, is volunteerism. And it's something that's absolutely fraught with issues. But firstly, Freya, can you explain the term volunteerism? Because it's a fairly new word, isn't it? It is. And it's something that I have studied through my years as a tourism scholar. So basically, volunteerism represents the intersection where holidays and tourism overlap with volunteering and voluntary service. And it specifically um, is like what I did in the Peace Corps. That's one example of this, where people are using their holidays to alleviate poverty or to support some need in, in communities. It's also about projects that tourists sign up to that could be rehabilitating or restoring natural environments. And then it also could be about social research or ecological research with communities. And in that case, I'm thinking about really well-known work internationally by an organization called Earthwatch, which does both of those. So for instance- I've heard of them, yeah. um, Yeah, they're well-known. And here in South Australia, one of the projects has been working with scientists, for instance, who are studying echidnas on Kangaroo Island. So it involves the volunteer tourist in the research of the scientist. So that's an example of, of this phenomenon, too. When I was in Cambodia, I often saw signs pointing to orphanages and furthermore that they were open to visits. I've seen quite a bit on social media of people going to developing countries to teach for a week or so at schools or kindergartens or orphanages. And even school programs sometimes take their students to developing countries to do charity work. In one of the papers I've read, you've said that volunteer tourism has become big business and it's estimated that it's worth $2.6 billion per year. So my questions to you, Freya, are who is profiting from this and how can charitable work not be beneficial? Really great questions. And I did this research where you quoted from was research I did in the pandemic with the Cambodian Children's Trust, which really opened my eyes to the negative impacts that well-meaning volunteer tourists can have. So in talking about it being big business, what's happened is mainstream tourism enterprises saw the lucrativeness of the volunteer tourism sector. And even the biggest enterprises, including TUI, have investments in the sector through some of their associated enterprises. Or, you know, good businesses like Intrepid will involve volunteering in their tours as well. So it's because the industry seeks profits and that this really took off as a strong opportunity to profit off of people's generous and good natures. And then, of course, you have it with the universities that they're private sector entities that will actually help universities organize their 
um, learning abroad opportunities. And then again, you know, that's generating profits for those businesses doing it. And it does particularly become a problem with the power differentials. You know, when we look at this critically, we have to ask ourselves, what is the power of the local community, the families, the schools and the organizations to actually control how those interactions happen? Mm. Because we wouldn't want people off the street coming into our childcare centers <laughs> and interacting for the day with our children. So why would we allow that to happen in developing countries? Mm. And they do it because of poverty, that they need the funds that the orphanage visitors might generate. Mm. So I've been influenced by the thinking of Tara Winkler, who developed an orphanage in Cambodia through circumstances that kind of overwhelmed her. She became involved in that. Mm. And she grew an awareness. And the article that you're, you referred to was referring to her journey of learning and change with the Cambodian Children's Trust, together with her co-director, Jed Pontha, that they changed that model into an empowerment for Cambodian families and communities, realizing that they had the knowledge for their own benefit, but just not the resources to activate those things. Hmm. So I think in looking at this impetus, this desire to do good in developing countries, you need to critically ask yourself, do you have the skills and the capabilities to actually deliver good outcomes? Hmm. Are you the right person to do it? So for instance, with Habitat for Humanity, projects, people in Australia will raise money to then go over and build good houses for Nepal, for instance. Mm. There's a great desire in that, but the local people know how to build their houses. Yeah. So you might be taking away jobs from teachers or from builders and so on. So these are the critical questions. And then we can ask ourselves a critical question for me, for instance, when I was a volunteer in Tonga. Why wasn't my desire to do good within, let's say, marginalized communities in my own exactly. community? And it's because I would have been made uncomfortable mm. by that because of the power differentials being more obvious there. <laughs> so, you know, we really have to critically challenge ourselves about our motivations. We can talk about this, you know, the language is coming through in these new generations about privilege, about whiteness, you know, settler colonialism. These are the words that younger generations are quite used to. These are the critical questionings of power and relationships. And the last thing I'll say is to just think about the emotional side of this too, that you've got really vulnerable children in orphanages mm -hmm. who become attached to the visitors. Yeah. But the tourism phenomenon is very brief. And you've got then the constant wrenching of relationships for these kids hmm. again and again and again. So again, you know, just being sensitive and empathetic can help potential volunteerists to critically question themselves and challenge themselves on not only their motivations, because, you know, we know the motivations are hopefully good, but also the real impacts of, of their choices. Mm. So I read another statistic, Freya, somewhere that said, I can't actually remember the percentage, but a large percentage of Cambodian children in orphanages have parents 
whether they're put in there because their parents can't support them or whether it's a way to to get money, whether it's, you know, a corrupt model is something that I questioned when I was there as well. I didn't go to an orphanage. It, it just felt in my gut, something felt off about the whole thing. Are these children actually orphans when you go to a, a, an orphanage in, in Cambodia or other developing countries where they have such volunteerism opportunities? Great question. And the research that I did with Cambodians Children's Trust really opened up my eyes to this. What was found in Cambodia was that tourism was actually driving the creation of orphans and the creation of orphanages. Mm. And it's a really important thing to understand. We'll start with a simple principle. Everybody loves their children. You know, nobody wants to give up their children if they don't have to. So what we have are pressures, and particularly with Cambodian families whose children ended up in orphanages in the past, it was often not only a lack of resources, but the belief that connecting them with Western-run orphanages would give their children a better opportunity to get education and break the cycle of poverty that they have been kept in. So we need to understand these things. With Cambodia, the research from the orphanage sector like CCT, as well as with the Cambodian government, was showing that most children had not only or possibly parent a parent that was available to care for the children, or at least extended family members. And in the culture, extended family is still very strong. So what CCT has done is created a model called the Village Hive, which mm. is working to improve the capacities of schools, for instance, and other social services to support young people before they become vulnerable to these things. So there's a really interesting model underway there. I can't speak for other countries, but researchers of orphanages and the problem of orphanages are seeming to confirm similar situations in places like Kenya, Haiti, mm. Nepal, so places around the world. But Cambodia particularly has had a a very strong problem with this. Mm. And there's a partnership going on between the Cambodian government and with district leadership throughout the country, together with some of the leading non-governmental organizations to really get a hold of this and empower communities and schools to take care of the children within the family. Mm. That's That's really good to hear. It's very hard to not become cynical when you're there. There were lots of cafes in Cambodia where apparently these street kids had been taken in and trained in hospitality. And, you know, I found myself even questioning that, you know, whether that that was just designed to pull the heartstrings of, of tourists or was this a really good thing? You know, how do you separate that? Well, I think that Tourists need to do their due diligence and research and make sure they're not supporting exploitative enterprises. Mm. I would imagine that there are, again, you know, businesses or individuals who will seek to profit off of those opportunities that they identify. But I do know of an enterprise started by Cambodian Children's Trust, I think called Jan Bai, if I remember correctly, in Siem Reap, if I remember correctly. Sorry, my memory is getting a little bit rusty, mm -hmm. that was a social enterprise supporting young people 
in hospitality training. Mm. And now what CCT has done has handed that over to the group of young entrepreneurs Mm. to run it as an entrepreneurial, social entrepreneurial enterprise on their own. So the one question I think I'd ask for any of these things that are involving entities like NGOs or even social enterprises that are saying that they want to do good is what is their pathway to exit that Mm -hmm. so that the people themselves become the runners of the enterprise or the service. That's empowerment. When you see that, that they're trying to do themselves out of a job, Mm. they are working to empower you know, the beneficiaries, that word seems a bit patronizing. But we're looking for those things about local people being able to thrive and create the futures that they want. And we should be seeing that in tourism. You know, let's take that back to the tourism phenomenon, that we should be supporting forms of tourism that make living in local communities better, Mm. make them empowered, and make them be able to create their visions of a thriving future. That's that's a great answer and that has really given me clarity to be able to make decisions on things that I might choose to support. So thank you for that. Let's talk about sustainability a little bit. What are some of the measures that destinations who are growing their tourism products, so perhaps they're a developing country, or maybe countries who have grown their tourist product but have decided the way that they've chosen to do it is not the way that they want to continue. What can they do to ensure what they're doing is sustainable for the future? And is there anybody who you think is doing it really well? It's really hard with the economies and societies organised the way that they currently are in most places in the world on market processes because that is a driver of or management and over-tourism as businesses and jurisdictions seek to extract as much profit from tourism as they can, we find that we can get poor management and leading to over-tourism and then over-tourism leading to negative impacts and damages, both Mm. on the infrastructure, on the ambiance of the social community, and also on the environment, the ecology of a place. So in talking about sustainability in tourism, the principle becomes comes from sustainable development. And that idea is that humans can use resources in such a way that it doesn't degrade those resources for the use of future generations. But you can see there's a tension in that. You know, people call this an oxymoron in the word sustain, which means to keep the same, versus development, which Mm. means to change. And in terms of economies today, it means to grow and use resources and consume. So already the term is problematic. And when we take that concept and move it into tourism, what often happens in our systems the way they are geared toward profits for shareholders or for business owners is it shifts to sustaining tourism rather than looking at tourism sitting well within the total economy and the total environment that mm-hmm. tourism is actually serving the people in the place. So, you know, those are some concepts I feel like I'm teaching, so forgive me. I'm a very eager student, so thank you. Okay. And then thinking about who is doing well, I think we've had particular 
learning opportunities with COVID-19. And we went from over-tourism to no-tourism and what people called under-tourism with the lessons of COVID-19. And there's some, some lessons that came out of that, that destinations, certain destinations are looking at changing the way they do tourism to be more forward thinking, more sustainable in the truest sense. And then also moving into this newest term, regeneration, where mm. tourism is seen to actually create better living rather than degrading living within a community. So who's doing it well? Well, you know, I'm really interested in what Palau has done. Palau's in the North Pacific. Mm. They created a pledge that the children wrote that the visitors sign up to, which is to become caretakers of Palau. And it sets out particular principles that the tourists are signing on to in their passport when they visit. Palau's a dive destination with some beautiful diving experiences. Mm. And they've, you know, acted to gamify responsible and sustainable tourism using apps and promoting positive behavior amongst the tourists using the the technology. Again, you know, I'm a little bit old to be appreciating this, but it's a very clever situation. Moving to the Pacific Islands, really good initiatives are coming out of the Pacific. They're creating a framework for thriving under tourism that the Pacific Tourism Organization's promoting. And there's great researchers working with island communities across the Pacific. Api Mavono and Regina Shavens in New Zealand are doing great work of Pacific understandings of well-being mm. and then looking at how that applies to tourism. And basically, they're developing a tourism that's in harmony with the cultural values, the social values, and the aims for good futures that islanders have. Then I'll do one more example and jump across the world to Europe that there's been a great initiative among a number, more than two dozen destination management organizations in 2022, working on a project called Democracy, which is taking the acronym DMO, Destination Management Organization, mm. and combining that with democracy mm. to look at how can they involve citizens in tourism governance, tourism management, and tourism planning for the future. So really exciting things happening around the world to just get that balance right between using tourism as an economic lever by inviting tourists in, but then managing them so that they actually enhance good living in the holiday destinations and lead to positive outcomes. Hmm. So Freya, I feel like often when we travel, it can be something quite impulsive. We see a cheap fare and we just book it and we take off on a holiday and there's not much preparation involved. And I think sometimes that can lead to problems with disrespecting cultures. For example, a friend of mine was in Jordan recently in Petra and she said that there were lots of women there wearing bikini tops and small shorts and kind of inappropriate clothing. What kind of things should we do to be more respectful to travellers to prepare for trips? That's a great question. And I will just give a little historical background because I think people younger than me won't remember this, but I started out in getting into tourism when I moved here to Adelaide 
I was volunteering with the what was then called Community Aid Abroad Tours. That's now become Oxfam, the development agency. And their tours unit would support tours in certain developing countries, including Vietnam and Solomon Islands, for example. And part of my work there was to help create a learning booklet that was for the tourists before they traveled that would give them information about the politics, the community, development needs, culture, but it was geared toward a niche of tourists that were particularly interested in being educated and responsible travelers. Since that time, that's fallen out of fashion. It used to be the role of non-governmental organizations or even religious bodies like churches who would do this responsible travel education. That then moved to the guidebooks where you'd find, for instance, in Lonely Planet guidebooks, there'd be a section at the beginning telling you about cultural sensitivities, Mm. how to be safe, responsible tourism codes in that. And I'll just say one of my favorite guidebooks was the Lonely Planet Guide to Australia, which was done in the time of the Sydney Olympics about traveling Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia. It was a brilliant guidebook. Mm -hmm. But since that time, you know, books are kind of out of fashion. Morality and responsibility are seen to be something that aren't something you do on holidays. We travel to escape and relax and be free. So it is kind of anathema to current philosophies of traveling. But I will say it's in your own interest to be aware as a visitor because it makes you more welcome. Mm. If we want to talk about experiencing crime or street harassment or getting into difficulties, it's often because the visitor hasn't learned what are the conditions and the context of visitors. And so I'll give you an example with Bali. There have been tensions about, for instance, Australian visitors coming, which is a an important market to Bali, yeah. being very insensitive and badly behaved. Mm-hmm. And in Aceh, we had the case of the young Australian man who got into mm-hmm. trouble from drinking alcohol. These things have materially bad impacts for the visitor. But we also need to be aware they have material, materially bad negative impacts and more ongoing for the local communities. Mm. So if we want the best outcomes, the best experiences to be welcomed and to be given good hospitality, we need to be aware. And so, for instance, know what the water situation is in the place. And don't waste water Mm. or know how to get your money to go into local pockets because a lot of money leaks out through tourism. When, for instance, you get your Johnny Walker whiskey at the bar, that's a leakage that happens. So buying local products, supporting local, local vendors, looking for the ways to get your money to enter that economy is extremely important. And it's not hard. It just takes being curious and willing to dig and learn and be engaged with a place. And that's partly what Palau was doing with its visitor pledge. Look for things like what the local community is concerned about, what their problems are. Hmm. Trey, what about our own Indigenous tourism? How can we support that and learn more about that? Well, I've been lucky enough when I first came here to Australia that I connected with the Nenangiri Aboriginal community here in South Australia. 
And they had a facility called Camp Kurong that was doing what they called race relations and cultural education work. And they had such a big influence when they were operating that most South Australian school children, but also others, I went there as a teacher educator to learn and appreciate the knowledges of Aboriginal cultures so important to Australia and how we know and love this place. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples talk about caring for country and love of country and give us some insights through tourism experiences of the beautiful places all around Australia. And sometimes I think native-born Australians, which I'm not, don't necessarily appreciate just Mm. how awesome this country is. Things like Tim Winton's recent series on Ningaloo is just one little glimpse of the beauty of this country. And it's the Aboriginal tourism operators who are doing such amazing experiences throughout the country. But I think we have, for whatever reason, I'm not going to pinpoint what the reason may be, but it might be racism in some cases. Sometimes it's a lack of appreciation of just how much knowledge these Aboriginal cultural educators and tourism leaders have. There are people like Bart Pegram in the Kimberley who are offering amazing, exciting and fun experiences, you know, laughter, music, education, all of these are part of the experiences they offer. And I think we tend to have a view that you've done one Aboriginal experience, let's say in the Blue Mountains, then you don't need to do it anywhere else because we think all Aboriginal cultures are the same. Mm. But the thing is, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures are derived from people living with local places and the relationships, the languages, the knowledge, the music that comes from people in place. Mm. So, of course, all of these variety, and there are more than 350 nations here in Australia, have different things to show us and teach us and share with us. So I would think, you know, in this year that we're talking about the referendum around the voice, that we should be inspired by the invitation to appreciate country with the knowledge holders. It's such a generous invitation they give us. And I still continue to this day to work with Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal educators, and I'm constantly floored about the powerful and generous welcomes and opportunities they give us. Freya, we've talked about how guidebooks have have pretty much disappeared and everything is is online and part of that is social media. That same friend who was in Jordan recently told me that uh, in one instance she had to wait while a couple of Instagrammers did a photo shoot and there were also guides who were taking money to take these same tourists to off limits areas at Petra so that they could get a photo. Do you think that social media has had a negative impact on travel and the way we travel? I believe that the culture that sits behind social media and the need to get the perfect selfie through Instagram is a sign of our times about selfish individualism and a lack of concern for the place and the people around you while you're doing this. And it is driving a lot of the damages of tourism. What's now happening, though, is destinations are becoming aware of this. And so, for instance, in uh, some destinations in Italy, they're banning using your phone 
camera in certain places so that you actually have to mm. experience the place and you don't get the crowding effect because everybody's jostling to get their shot, trying to make it look like what it isn't, that it's free of tourists. You see this in the cruise industry quite a lot, that they'll show a beautiful beach with only you sitting there drinking your drink in the image. Mm. But a lot of manipulations happen to make that happen. So, yes, I think that it is problematic and that we as visitors ought to look at ourselves and ask, what is driving our visitation? And it's even bigger than that, that you're having digital nomadism coming into the tourism industry mm. and destinations competing to attract these influencers to the destinations. And it's leading to some distortions for local communities. It's the newest phenomenon. We can be anti-technology in this. I rather would talk about what it shows about our values mm -hmm. and our behavior that we're very myopically focused. And do we actually even experience destinations more than just through the lens of how it makes me look or how I want to project an image of myself. Mm. When we were talking about COVID before, I, I'm disappointed in the wash up after COVID. I just, I heard so many positive noises and affirmations about change around travel. And I thought it was going to be something really radical. Yet I read recently that tourism to Antarctica, for example, has risen by 40% and there seems to be more cruise ships than ever going there. And well, actually, there just seems to be more cruise ships than ever. Did anyone actually walk the walk? Has anyone actually put some of those ideas into practice? I think it is bubbling away in communities around the world that there are initiatives happening bringing this change. So the one that I mentioned about the European destination management organizations with the DMOocracy project are continuing to do their great work. There's a lot of people working on regenerative tourism, and I'll do a, a shout out to Diane Dredge and her tourism collab group, which are working with the islands in the Bass Strait, Flinders Island for one, to work with the communities to create a tourism that serves them. Uh, Byron Bay has had the youth create a Byron Way pledge. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of really interesting things happening. And I love this idea of getting youth empowered and engaged in creating the futures they want. There's always going to be this status quo tendency to continue business as usual. There are powerful entities and supporting governments who profit and benefit from keeping tourism as this sort of myopic growth facilitator. And we have to be critical of that because the jobs that come off that form of pro-growth, over-tourism-focused sort of thing actually is causing more problems than generating the benefits. Mm. We find that the jobs are not well paid. There's not career pathways. That destinations are experiencing leakages. That means that the financial and economic benefits they're promised don't actually pan out. I think we're getting more people critical of that. And the cruise sector, for one, which is arguably the worst, you know, in profit extraction with the vast majority of that industry monopolized by three major multinational corporations. I think it's 70% of the cruise industry is dominated by those three. Wow. And that model is a real problem of 
profit extraction at the workers' expense, at destination's expense, and with ecological devastation in its wake. And I think that's under challenge. And you're finding social movements develop, such as no Grand Navi in Venice, which means no big ships mm. against those mega cruise ships. Mm. I keep reading all these statements being put out by cruise companies on sustainability and and how they're doing things differently and, and why they should be going to Antarctica, etc. Is this just greenwashing? Well, we have to be critical and we should understand their model of profit extraction, which really is based upon the backs of other people. Is it greenwashing? Yes. They know that the push for sustainability is growing and that they have to justify, particularly in a place like Antarctica, which has been pristine up until our interventions. It was a place with no humans and only scientists who were doing good scientific research. It is really problematic that the bigger boats are going there now. And mm -hmm. there's been warning from scientists that if there is a shipwreck that releases oil or other contaminants into the ocean, that that's going to have a devastating impact. So the more that go there, the more that risk has increased. I do know that my colleagues at the University of Tasmania are researching the tourism industry development in Antarctica, and they'll be coming back with some great insights mm. into these tensions. And we can await what they say, but I do see this drive that the tourism industry will provide whatever the tourists are willing to consume for their profits. And what's driving this for the tourist is they want to be intrepid travelers. They want to see the pristine areas. They may believe that they're contributing to conservation in a place like Antarctica. And that's what, you know, they choose to to listen to from the advertising that they're getting. Mm. But we also have to ask ourselves, you know, if all of us had this, because it's a very small minority of privileged people who are risking these environments, we have to ask ourselves, what is the ego that is driving this and at what cost? Because, of course, the real crises that we're facing now that the scientists are warning us about, and daily I'm seeing it getting more loud, <laughs> is the climate crisis and the multiple crises, the term now polycrisis is being used for this, as we cross planetary boundaries. We have too many people, too much population, consuming at too high of a amount, and tourism is part of that. So how can you justify a visit to Antarctica to support conservation and yet at the same time you've flown and got on a polluting ship and committed so much of your carbon footprint mm -hmm. to that exercise it seems that we're delusional the industry's delusional the tourists are delusional and many that support it are delusional mm, interesting so wrapping up, Frey, can you give us some bullet points? If we can kind of leave this on a, on a positive note, how can we be better travellers? What, what can we do? Well, I think that we start first by being inwardly introspective, that we ask ourselves, what is the reason that we're travelling? What is it we're seeking from it? 
And can we approach the opportunities to travel, understanding that we have a privilege if we're able to do so, with a spirit of the old hospitality that you are in reciprocity, that you're giving and receiving as you enjoy the beautiful places and the beautiful cultures of the world. So that spiritual idea or that soul um, standing is very important because it changes how you travel. My second step would be educate yourself about the place that you're going to. And that could be here in Australia or it could be overseas, wherever you go. Be aware, be attentive, be educated. And that way you can make choices that you're consuming your experiences, not only benefit you and build you up, but also benefit the people in the places that you're visiting. And then lastly, know your own place. To be a good traveler, I think you also need to know yourself and know where you come from and appreciate your local home and local place. And then you can go forth with a curiosity about visiting other places and other people. And again, connected to that is welcoming the visitors in your home community. Are you a good host? We should be following reciprocity and relationships in all we do. So be a good host to visitors in our communities as well. Well, it's been so fascinating talking with you, Freya. I know we've only just touched on some very complex issues. It would take hours and hours, I think, of of talking to you to really get to the meat of this. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. And listeners, I will put some links to Freya's work on the website as well. Thank you, Freya. Thank you so much, Natasha. Well, that's it for this episode of Extra Virgin. Thank you, as always, for your company. And wherever you are in the world, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, you can follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you'd like to help support Extra Virgin and keep us ad-free, please consider buying us a virtual coffee on the website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. Extra Virgin.